Queer Money Bingo is coming live to Denver, Colorado on Thursday, June 13th at the downtown Capital One Cafe. To sign up for your door prizes, pride sunglasses, free coffee, more swag, fun, and games, go to queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 186. As most queer people can attest, life is hard. Adding navigating life as a queer person in a straight world to everyday stresses such as work, family, friends, bills, neighbors, traffic, on and on and on, it can feel hopeless and we can feel helpless. But are there other options than traditional therapy and medications? Yes, as we'll learn from today's guest, Nick Venagoni of Holistic Healing. Nick is a psychotherapist and a certified hypnotherapist. He guides and supports queer professionals struggling with anxiety, anger, relationship problems, or trauma to find more joy and ease in their lives. Through mindfulness practices, he helps people decrease negative emotional states and open up new ways of thinking about themselves and the world. Sit back and relax, and let's hear Nick's advice for coping as queer people in today's society. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. So welcome, Nick, to Queer Money. We're excited to have you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We're excited to be able to reciprocate for you having us on Queer Spirit. So there's a lot of synergies with Queer Spirit and Queer Money, huh? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of ways that money can support us and spirit can support us. Yeah. And I think that For many people, if you don't confuse spirit and religion, spirit and money in many ways can be tied up together and in many ways can support each other. Today we're going to talk about, and I think a very poignant topic, especially for the LGBT community, we're going to dive into the topic of how to identify whether or not we have trauma. And if we do, how can we start to overcome that? I think that, at least from my experience, most of the gay men that we've met both on a personal basis and in a, in a business partnership, do kind of carry some sort of struggle or challenge with us because many of us came from times and places when it wasn't okay to be gay. And so we're kind of, to whatever degree, we're carrying that into our adulthood, whether positively or negatively. So I, I feel like this is a very poignant topic for our community. It's, do you find that as well? I do. I think that for most queer people, whether they be gay or trans or gender nonconforming or whatever, label they fall underneath the queer umbrella is that there is some way that they may have experienced homophobia or what I like to, I'm trying to get people to start using the word queer phobia because it can be more expansive and inclusive, Mm -hmm. that they can experience homophobia or rejection in some way that can create trauma and really affect our self-esteem, which can then affect the way that we relate to money, as you talk about a lot on your show. Absolutely. So what is your definition of trauma exactly? Well, trauma is just an emotional response to a bad experience or a terrible event. It could be an accident, like a car accident, or it could be some kind of physical attack on yourself. Um, A lot of people think of trauma as PTSD that veterans experience perhaps or some kind of physical abuse like child abuse or rape or if you're mugged or something like that. But there's also other kinds of trauma that people experience that could be from a natural disaster or just being in an environment where there is vicarious trauma that you experience in the environment. So as I had talked about people growing up in a homophobic environment, even if they grew up in a family that was very accepting of them, they may have grown up in a community. So it could be their school environment or other members in the family who are not welcome and accepting of who they are in their identity. And so that can create experiences of trauma that can affect our self-esteem or the way we feel safe or comfortable in the world. And do you think that everyone has some form of trauma or is it just a a percentage of the population? That's a really good question. I mean, I don't want to say yes, that everyone has trauma, but I think it would be hard to find someone who doesn't have any level of trauma. You know, someone probably has some minor traumatic experience in their life that they may have experienced. And it could be just like your teacher yelling at you for getting a bad grade and that's it. And then it, 
creates an experience of, well, I don't like teachers or I don't like people in an authority space or something like that. And mm-hmm. so then that then affects the way that you relate to that kind of experience. So I would say, yes, that most people have some form of trauma. There's just different levels of it. And within the field of psychology, people talk about they use a shorthand term like big T trauma or small T trauma. So the big T trauma are some of the things I mentioned before, like PTSD or some kind of abuse or natural disaster or something like that. Whereas a small T trauma would be something more like, you know, your brother picking on you growing up, depending on the, you know, if it's a low level of experience and abuse or a teacher yelling at you or something like that. I don't want to oversimplify this, but does that mean that the level in which that impacts us or affects us in our day-to-day lives is either bigger or smaller? (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. I would say that's definitely a good way of looking at it because, you know, someone can experience, it all depends on the person too, like two people could experience the exact same thing and one person could have a much bigger negative reaction to it and have it leave a lasting traumatic imprint on them than someone else. Right. And that is usually based on their history of trauma. You know, so two people who are adults could be, say they're in a store or something that's held up at gunpoint. And there could be two different people who are having the same experience. And a couple days later, they might have a very different reaction to it. Mm-hmm. There might be someone who has a history of other kinds of trauma who might take a lot longer to recover from that experience versus someone else who's never had very much trauma in their life. And they might recover from that experience a lot quicker because of the way that their brain and their nervous system are reacting to that experience. And it also could be related to resources as well. You know, what kind of emotional and psychological resources they have. It's evident, I think, when you see maybe someone who has had a traumatic experience that turns it into something that can then be beneficial or a learning experience or inspiring to other people in the world. And Mm -hmm. then the flip side of someone who has a similar experience and can go into a completely different space, a very negative space, even though the experiences may have been similar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also newer research coming out now. You may have heard people talk about ACEs, your ACEs score, which is A-C-E-S, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so people who have a higher ACEs score, which means they've had more trauma in their life, they're going to have a more stronger negative reaction to something in adulthood as Mm. opposed to someone else who has a lower ACEs score. That's interesting. Your ACEs score not only determines your mental health, but also your physical health, too. And so there's all these studies about the way that the stress from adverse childhood experiences and traumatic experiences growing up, particularly within the home and the home environment, affect people on the long term. That's interesting. This is very fascinating. And and, and I apologize for not being a novice at this topic. So sorry if some of these questions seem elementary. Oh no, it's fine. But this I, is but, this is not your field of expertise. <laughs> right. so. But I'm curious, is it is there a way to sort of predict the response of someone based on their ACEs score? I would say that the higher the ACEs score, the more negative reaction they're going to have to something and the longer it's going to take for them to overcome something that happens to them for the most part. Yeah. And is that negative reaction always obviously negative or can it be something that maybe the world sees as positive such as you know somebody who has a high aces score who then becomes super ambitious and can't stop working to climb the corporate ladder amass wealth Mm -hmm. um, and is so hyper driven which society be like oh that's amazing but that could be a very negative experience for that person actually yeah again that's a really good question and i think applying it to the audience we could look at people who may have grown up gay or queer and experienced a lot of homophobia and then they say well i'm going to show them and then they they become very motivated to be high achievers in life so it depends on how they use that and how they balance their experience of being a high achiever you know just to give you an example like i had a client a few years back who was gay and had a lot of anxiety and the way that he dealt with his anxiety was through exercise. And that's one of the things that I tell a lot of my clients, which is 
if you exercise, you move your body, you get your heart rate up, you're breathing more, and you're getting more oxygen to your brain. And so that really helps with the experience of stress and anxiety. Sure. But someone can also exercise to a point where it's not good for you, mm -hmm. you know, so someone could exercise like five hours a day every day, and it may be good for you mentally, but it might not be healthy for your body. Right. And so someone could also do that, like if they're going to be an overachiever, they may turn into a workaholic and they may end up stressing themselves out in other ways, not taking care of their body by sleeping or eating right, that kind of thing. Or they may become an overachiever where they neglect their personal relationships. And so they may feel like they are just focusing really hard on their career. And it might be a way that they are just avoiding what's going on. So there are ways that people can react to their trauma that, according to the larger culture, looks healthy and productive. Right. But it might just be another way that they're avoiding dealing with the actual trauma. Yeah, I think that one of the things that John and I have often been curious about is this drive, especially in the gay male community, to appear to be very fabulous, right? I need to have the nicest cars, the nicest house, home, the nicest clothes, take the nicest vacation. I have to be all over Instagram and Facebook, and I need to prove to everyone else that I am better than what mm -hmm. anyone else may have thought of me when I was younger. And we've always been curious if that is possibly our community's way of overcompensating for past tra traumatic events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I would definitely say that one thing that you could look for in your clients or people who are following you is to look at why they're doing what they're doing. Why are they spending the amount of money that they're spending? Even if they're not overspending, say that they make a lot of money or they're budgeting and they have no problems financially, but they still might be, you know, doing retail therapy mm -hmm. or something like that or traveling as a way to escape. There's all different ways to escape the trauma. And some of them look like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll and addiction and those kinds of things. But it also can look like something from the outside. If you don't know the person very well, it could seem like they're perfectly fine. Right. So it really depends on a more deeper level what's going on for the person and is there something that they're avoiding by doing whatever it is that they're doing even if the habit that they're participating in is a healthy functional habit right i guess that's kind of to some degree where we get that expression don't judge a book by its cover right, right? Mm -hmm. cuz it may look really appealing or great on the outside but inside it's yeah, I saw an episode of Oprah several years ago when she still had a TV show, obviously. And there is a black gay man on there talking about how, at least from his perspective, the gay male culture was super obsessed with being all the appearances of success, having amazing physiques and um, living an amazing lifestyle and having great careers because many of us are trying to overcompensate for feeling inadequate, being called girly or like, we, you know, just simply not fitting in. And so I've, I've always kind of thought there's an element of truth to that. Um, and of course, that doesn't apply broadly to everybody. It could go the exact opposite, right? Somebody could just give up on life and not take care of themselves at all. And so it has an adverse effect. So I'm curious, how do you know if you have a problem that needs to be addressed and that's rooted more deeply than than the surface? Is that something that's always... That you're, like your clients have to see that in themselves or is that sometimes impossible to see? Again, it depends. I mean, most people don't come to see me for therapy or for coaching unless they already have some kind of problem or struggle. However, sometimes they may come to me with a particular problem or struggle and they think that that's the main issue, but there's really another issue that I end up discovering and pointing out to them. I mean, it's funny that we're having this conversation about trauma because most people, when they hear the word trauma, they do think about the big T trauma. And mm -hmm. I've told a couple of my clients, like, what you're telling me is trauma. And these experiences that you've told me of X, Y, and Z do count as trauma. And a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't realize that I had trauma or I didn't realize that what happened to me was traumatic or I didn't realize that what this person did to me was abusive. I just thought oh, that's just how life is, that's normal, or that's just a challenging experience, but it doesn't mean I have trauma. Mm -hmm. 
So the answer is no, people don't have to know it. But if they don't know it or they don't have any negative effects of it on them, then they're not going to seek out help. Right. 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 In the same way that someone may be making a lot of money and they don't because they make so much money, they don't have any problems financially, but they could probably still use your services of budgeting and, you know, savings and that kind of thing. You know, and some of the stuff that you talked about earlier, gay men spending a lot of money because of they have to have a certain lifestyle. So they look successful because they want to prove people wrong. They may be perfectly fine right now, but they could definitely use services like yours to save for the future. They might not be saving for the future, which is important. Well, and I wonder too, I'm thinking about the experience that David and I just had when we were house sitting in central Pennsylvania and we were removed from all of our attachments. We had no, we couldn't just hold hands and walk down the street and go to a restaurant or a bar or to a nice park. We didn't necessarily live in a nice neighborhood. We didn't live, nothing that we were used to or familiar with and that we liked was there and we didn't have our friends around. There wasn't even a liquor store. Like it's like anything that we would have been drawn to with even the slightest frustration or angst or problem. How many times have we driven home from work and we're like, you know, I could just use a bottle of wine tonight. And so we'd stop for a bottle of wine, not necessarily realizing that it was a moderate way to mask moderate pain. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until we sort of lost all those attachments did we realize that some of those sort of things that we took for granted, we didn't realize that they were actually masking some sort of pain within us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think most people, especially, unfortunately, in America, we have a lot of people doing well financially. And I think that a lot of people don't connect with the challenges that they have internally because they can easily mask it with just stopping by the bar for a drink or running to a store and grabbing a new shirt or whatever, anything that can just slightly out for sushi. increase their dopamine uh, and, and, and mask the pain that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, it really depends on why you're doing what you're doing and mm-hmm. is the level that you're doing it healthy or is it unhealthy? And also comes back to resources. Like what it sounds like you both experienced was you realize, oh, we don't have the regular resources here that we normally have. And so what are we noticing that's coming up without these resources, right? Right. So sometimes you may just be noticing, oh, I'm not getting my basic needs met and I'm not able to socialize in the way that I want to socialize or I'm not able to go out in nature to that park that I really like or I'm not able to go out and enjoy culture the way I want to enjoy culture. And those are just basic resources that most people have access to in one way or another And some of those are even free resources. Um, But when you get to a place where you don't have access to it for one reason or another, then it starts to affect you in a negative way. And it Mm -hmm. could affect just your basic baseline health on a negative level. Or it could also mean that you don't have the resources that you need to support the trauma that you have or maybe mask the trauma that you have. Yeah. So what I'm... It's a tricky thing. It's like, is this thing that I'm doing, is it helping to feel better because I have trauma and anxiety or depression or any of those things? Or is it something that I'm doing to avoid it? And so it can be a tricky thing. So a lot of people come to me and I do a pretty thorough intake with new clients and, you know, ask them about their, their basic life habits, their eating, drinking, exercise you know, socialization, their support network, that kind of thing. And we really look at just the basics, like why are they doing what they're doing or why are they not doing what they're not doing and how can they change some of those things to find help? Because also when people first come to therapy or to see a coach or a counselor and they have some significant trauma they need to work on, the first step is to resource them. Mm-hmm. So if someone has depression or anxiety that's pretty severe, especially if it comes from trauma, I'm not going to dive into it probably for a week or two, maybe even a couple months, depending on the person and what the trauma is, because I really want to help them get resourced. Mm-hmm. So that could be just basic self-care stuff, you know, making sure that they're eating right and they're getting enough rest and that they feel safe and comfortable in their home environment. But a lot of people don't have access to those things either for right. financial reasons or another reason. Mm-hmm. And now a quick word from our sponsor. 
Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. So is trauma the same as suffering or is there a difference? I would say that suffering is the result of trauma. Trauma is kind of like this umbrella term, like you've you've had a traumatic experience and then the way that you react to that right. is a type of suffering, right? You know, so someone, again, could be the victim of an attack and then the way they react to that could be they fall into a deep depression and so that's a kind of suffering or they okay. are really anxious and they don't feel safe going out at night or they don't feel safe leaving their house or they don't feel safe going out alone. So then that becomes a kind of suffering. The reason I ask that question is because there's the belief within the Buddhist philosophy that existence is suffering. So I'm kind of going sort of on a existential discussion here, uh-huh. but is it possible to live without trauma and suffering? Is that within the realm of possibility for humans? I want to backtrack a little bit. <laughs> so I... First of all, I would say that the way that I interpret that noble truth of the Four Noble Truths from Buddhism is not that life is suffering, but life contains suffering or life includes suffering. And it doesn't mean that life is suffering or it has to be suffering, but it includes suffering most Mm -hmm. of the time. And I don't know how far you want to get into the Buddha stuff, so we won't go there unless you want to. But suffering can take all forms, you know, and it could be like, I don't get what I want or I have something that I don't want, right? Mm -hmm. So that is just a simple form of suffering from the Buddhist perspective. So I would say that, yes, you can have life without suffering, but it takes a lot of practice and or resources to really change your experience or the way that you're relating to your life experiences. As far as having life without trauma, you know, that kind of goes back to your question of does everyone have trauma? And again... I would challenge someone to find me someone who has zero trauma, and then we could say, well, that person has a life without trauma. But I would say that most people who have a certain level of privilege, be it socioeconomic privilege or the privilege of growing up heterosexual in a loving family that has no problems with them being gay, or someone who is gay who grows up in a family that is very loving and accepting of them, you know, they have that benefit and that privilege of not having the experience of those traumas. But again, they're probably going to have some level of trauma, even if it's, you know, a baby T trauma at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. And I guess based on what you're saying here, it almost sounds to me like to a certain degree, trauma can be contextual then. That if we all have experienced some level of trauma, or it's likely that all of us have experienced some level of trauma, what may appear as traumatic to me because of my context of where uh, where I was raised or how my family was raised or my socioeconomic status, what I may experience as traumatic may not be traumatic to someone else because of their upbringing and their socioeconomic status or their gender identification or sexual orientation. So it seems like the reason I kind of the reason I bring this up is because I think oftentimes people look at we dismiss someone else's feelings or traumatic events because we personally never could experience that as being traumatic. Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, I work with couples as well. So I could have someone come in who comes from a family where They were really encouraged to express themselves, to express anger, and it was safe to express anger in a way. And they may have gotten, you know, a little excited and their voice raised and that kind of thing. But then at the end of the day, the family still felt loving and comfortable and safe to do that. So that would be person A. And then you have person B who grew up in a family where maybe it wasn't safe to express anger. Like maybe they had an alcoholic parent who was angry all the time. And so it was really important to be quiet and keep the environment still and to not excite anger at all in the environment. And so then you have these two people coming together in a relationship 
And when conflict arises, you have someone, person A, who's like, well, let's just talk about it. And it's okay if we raise our voices. And the other person's like, why are you yelling at me? And it's scary when you get angry and they shut down and they run away. And I'm sure that you guys probably see the same thing with people around money, like people who grew up in completely different socioeconomic households, or they just learn different things about their relationship to money Mm -hmm. based on the way that their parents taught them, you know, unconsciously usually about their relationship to money. And you get those two people together and it's going to be challenging and they're not going to see eye to eye. And it can take a lot of effort to really understand where your partner is coming from and how to find a way to still be in relationship and solve the problem of how do we deal with conflict or how do we deal with money? How do we deal with raising our children? Who washes the dishes? You know, all those things. (laughs) Right. Comes down to that. (laughs) (laughs) So are there common ways that you notice that queer community or your clients without violating confidentiality mask or ignore their trauma? Do we all have sort of similar responses You know, I work mostly with queer people, but I do also work with heterosexual and cisgendered people that I don't see any major differences between the way gay people deal with trauma and cope with trauma than with straight people. And in this day and age, it's mostly through dissociation and numbing out, primarily through use of electronics and social media and that kind of thing because it's so easy and it's so socially acceptable and you can do it anytime anywhere so it's really easy for people to as someone told me once fall into a scroll hole where you just keep scrolling and scrolling (laughs) i like that um and it's a way to just dissociate but it can also be really triggering at the same time because there's so much people so much content that people are putting out on social media that is hard for people to deal with be it, you know, socio-political stuff or people seeing what their friends are doing. And so they think, oh, well, you know, my life's not that great. And so I don't feel good about myself, but they can't get off the social media. But there's also people who use drugs and alcohol and shopping and that kind of thing, too. Well, it's interesting because that's where I thought you were going to go with it, that you were going to say drugs and alcohol, sex, shopping, that stuff. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm surprised that you brought up social media. So do you see that as a bigger problem or just the newer problem? Well, the thing about social media is that, again, it's more socially acceptable. Right. right? right. You know, people know that drugs and alcohol or shopping to a certain excess or you know, sleeping with three people a day, every day, all the time is not healthy for you. Whereas it's less of a popular idea that being on social media is bad for you. Although people more and more are talking about the detrimental effects of being on computers and being on social media, both for the mind and the psyche and also for the body, you know, the way that people are have poor posture because of the way that they are engaging with their devices. Right. So do you think people are gravitating towards social media to sort of mask or or numb the pain of their trauma, like such as, as some people would to alcohol and drugs? Yeah, I would say so. It Again, it just depends on the person. Like if someone has a more intense reaction to their trauma, particularly around anxiety and anger and depression, if they have something more intense like that, or even anger, social media is usually not going to do it for them. It's usually going to take something else Mm -hmm. like alcohol. I mean, alcohol is probably, you know, the next most socially acceptable thing going on or use of other recreational drugs and that kind of thing. But again, it just depends on their usage. Right. right. So you have and a lot of people don't share that information with you. Right. Right. At least, you know, until they come to therapy and I ask them those questions. But even I've even had some people who in the beginning, they don't feel comfortable sharing that information with me because they have a lot of shame and embarrassment about it. And I totally understand that. And I don't force anyone to talk about it in the beginning if they don't want to. Sure. I guess my my concern is that, you know, if, if you, you have a triggering event and you're feeling bad or you're angry or whatever, for whatever reason, and then you go to social media to sort of escape the pain or to ignore it, but then the only thing that people ever post on social media is all the amazing things that's going on in their lives, you all of a sudden sort of feel like detached or you can't relate necessarily to that or why is my life not as 
amazing as everyone else's insta life and so it kind of just makes the problem even worse i would think yeah possibly but there might be other people who are using social media in a healthy way just because of the way that they are interpreting what's happening as they say okay i'm anxious or i'm upset right now so i'm going to go on social media mm. and i feel a lot of empathetic joy for people who are doing these fun things or you know i think it's part of the reason that cat videos and dog videos are so popular <laughs> because <love> <laughs> <laughs> because they're funny or they're cute or they release endorphins or oxytocin when you are watching those videos because you go, oh, isn't that so cute or that's funny right. or, you know, whatever. And it's a way to feel good. And I'm not saying that all social media is bad. It's all about why you're doing what you're doing and how much you're doing and how the level of what you're doing is affecting your life. As soon as you are on social media to a point where you're like, oh, I'm not going to go to work or oh, I'm not going to go socialize with my friends in person because I'm too busy playing this game or I can't miss anything on social media. Candy crush. Is that how you maybe look to identify that you have some sort of past trauma? Is that I'm looking at, are any of the things that I'm doing in my life, am I doing them to a detriment to something else that could be happening in my life? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're doing anything to a detriment in your life, that there's probably something going on that you are avoiding. Or you just have an addiction. Right. And again, this is just my my own personal belief. And I'm not an addiction specialist. But my own philosophy around addiction is that addiction is not a problem, mostly. I mean, there are some people who have a genetic or chemical predisposition to it. But a lot of the times, addiction is a symptom of another problem. And people are using the addiction to just avoid the problem. And there have even been studies coming out recently in the last couple of years that saying that one of the biggest reasons people have addiction issues is because of isolation. Interesting. Really? Yeah. So it's very interesting what you just said, because John and I have felt this way, especially about our past behavior but we also see it in the people that we have worked with and the people who reach out to us via social media or email. We see them express this, that the problems that they have with money are often not the real problem. They are the symptom. We go back and say that the primary reason why we spent recklessly when we were younger was because we were so desperate to fit in because we felt like we didn't fit in when we were growing up. And Mm -hmm. so we had to have the nice clothes. We had to pay for our friends' drinks when we went out. We took the vacations that we couldn't afford so we could hang out with the people that we thought we should be hanging out with because we so desperately wanted to fit in with a particular group because we we didn't fit in with anybody when we were younger. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a client who just this week was talking about his relationship with money and how he has noticed that he's been spending more money both on himself and on other people. And it's part of his way of feeling like, I mean, he's not consciously doing this, but he's sort of talking about like, oh, well, I want people to feel good around me. I want people to like me. I want people to know that I care about them. And so this is how I'm doing it by buying meals for them or buying them gifts or something like that. Even though he knows deep down, like there are other ways that he can show support to people or have a good time with people and just people can like him for him that they don't have to like him just because of the gifts that they buy him but that's part of the work right i, I for will him admit, to feel more comfortable in himself and secure like i'm a good person and they like me because of who i am not because of what i do for them or what i buy for them right i, I will admit that that was that was something that i've i have really struggled with because I used to be the one that when I would go out, I would buy drinks and meals and tickets to events for a lot of my friends. And it took me a long time to uncover the fact that I wasn't being generous. I was actually being very selfish because what I was really doing is I was trying to buy people's friendship. Mm -hmm. And I had a very interesting conversation with someone in our Queer Money Facebook group around this because that individual was starting to recognize that they were also doing the exact same thing. And that we oftentimes can confuse what appears to be a good thing, 
generosity with actually something that's detrimental to us because we're not actually confronting the, the real issue or actually in my case, just trying to be friends with people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the times that people start to notice that pattern is they don't notice it in themselves. They start to resent other people for not reciprocating. Oh. And so that means that they have a certain expectation about what it means to be doing those things. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, I'm going to buy you this because that means that I care about you and you're going to like me. But I also expect that you're going to do that for me. And that's the way that, you know, that's the exchange in our relationship. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Whereas if you just give of your time or your money or your energy or your care or your love freely without expectation, then it doesn't really matter whether or not the person reciprocates and you'll have a better relationship with that person. I like that. So curious, if someone recognizes that the trauma that they've experienced in their life is is having a, an adverse effect. Do you have any sort of you know, three, five, seven, couple actionable steps that they can implement in, in their life to maybe sort of start to improve things or to start to identify what their, their trauma might be? To help identify the trauma or how they just begin to take care of themselves? Well, that's a good question. What would have to come first? I mean, do you kind of have to understand what the trauma is before you can actually start to overcome it? Mm, no, because a lot of people have symptoms of trauma without knowing where the symptoms came from. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, you may have someone who may have experienced some kind of trauma or abuse. And part of the way they dealt with it was by suppressing it and dissociating. And if it was something that happened as a child, they may have gotten to a place where they forgot that it happened, but they still have anxiety or depression as a result of that. So they don't have to know what the trauma is. I mean, if they do, it can be very helpful, especially in therapy, depending on the particular kind of therapy that you're doing. But as far as dealing with the result of the trauma, like the anxiety or depression, they don't have to know what the trauma is. But ways to begin to start to identify it or to work with it and to feel better I think the important thing is to really think about what are my needs right now. And I don't know if this is something that you guys do in your work, but I imagine that, you know, money comes into this a lot too. Like, what are my needs? What are my financial needs? But then what are my other needs? What are my physical needs? What are my emotional needs? What are my mental needs or my spiritual needs? And how can I get those needs met? How can I first meet those needs myself without having to depend on other people to do them and what are some ways that i can meet those needs hopefully that don't have to do with money but again you know we live in a culture where self-care is commoditized a lot mm -hmm. but there are lots of ways to take care of yourself that are free or cheap but you know a lot of in our culture, we talk about self-care means going to therapy and some people can't afford therapy or it means going to yoga class or going to a meditation class or something like that. But there are lots of ways that you can meet your needs in other ways. It could mean, you know, going for a walk in the park or going to talk to friends or going to church and praying or whatever it is. And unfortunately, you know, especially within the LGBT community, there are a lot of needs that are not being met, even that most people can get them for free can't get, you know, because they don't have community or they're isolated or they're poor or something like that. So hopefully some people who need those things are in areas where they can get those resources for free or for cheap. And then I would say the next thing, especially related to trauma, if someone had some kind of physical trauma, like if they were attacked or abused or something like that, is to really focus on boundaries and exploring what are my boundaries and your boundaries are usually identified by identifying what your needs are first. So really looking at what is my physical boundary? How do I feel comfortable just in a physical space with another person? How close can I get to them? You'd be surprised to know how many people like are totally okay with having sex, but they don't want non-sexual physical closeness. <laughs> Yeah. because that can be a little bit too emotionally or psychologically intimate, which feels scary. Right. You know, so especially when we're talking about gay men, a lot of gay men, you know, feel very comfortable with sex, but they can sometimes have problems being physically 
close with someone without it being sexual or without it being erotic because it can trigger a lot of trauma that may be related to emotional or psychological abuse. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that one kind of surprises that, me. Yeah, the, uh, I can't wrap my head around that one. I'm familiar with that whole idea of being able to have sex, but not being able to have other forms of intimacy or physical touch. But I never really thought of this whole idea of needs and then boundaries and identifying them. Because, I mean, obviously in our work, we do talk to individuals about covering or making sure they understand what their needs are, financial needs are. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't think that much about the boundaries and how those boundaries may be affecting us or maybe holding us in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, boundaries are really important, especially for a lot of queer people who may have experienced any kind of abuse. I mean, I can't tell you how many people come into my office who talk about being bullied. Mm -hmm. You know, and it could be bullied at home or bullied at school or as an adult bullied in their workplace. And it's it's a problem. And, you know, so it's important for people to feel safe and comfortable to express their boundaries in order to get their needs met, to feel comfortable. What would the boundaries look like to somebody who feels like, for example, that they're uncomfortable with going to work because they're being bullied for whatever reason and however that looks to them? How would the boundaries play into that? Well, it can be challenging because you have to verbally communicate your boundaries with people. And so if someone is violating your boundaries and you're in a place where you don't even feel comfortable or safe enough to verbally communicate your boundaries or you don't feel empowered to communicate your boundaries, it's going to be hard to do that. So most people will just end up quitting their job or leaving the situation that they're in instead of expressing their boundary. But to give you an example, like I have a client who had the experience of long-term childhood sexual abuse and didn't tell anyone about it for many, many years. And so they were holding a lot of that in. And whenever they were physically close to someone, their reaction to it was to laugh. And that was just their anxiety manifesting. You know, And most people interpret laughter as an approval to continue doing what you're doing or that it's joyful. But for this person, it was very painful. It's just that their reaction was laughter. So this person now works in an environment where there are people who don't have great boundaries. And, you know, even here in San Francisco, where we're all very lovey-dovey and open and everything like that, a lot of people like to hug, this person really doesn't like being hugged. And so someone in the workplace just hugged him you know, just out of a sign of like gratitude and appreciation. And my client didn't feel, you know, he laughed. And so the person who's hugging him doesn't know like, oh, like, okay, whatever, he's laughing, you Mm -hmm. know, he's happy. But that's not the case. And so I really had to work with this person to get to a place where they felt comfortable enough speaking up either beforehand or in the moment when there is something happening like that to say, I don't feel comfortable being hugged right now. You know, and a lot of people, especially with something like that, they don't feel comfortable doing that because they're afraid of hurting the other person's feelings. Right. Because hugging is such a social norm that, you know, if you tell someone that you work with a colleague, like, I don't want you touching my shoulder like that, or I don't want you shaking my hand that way, or I don't want you hugging me. They might think, oh, this person doesn't like me, and then it's going to create tension in the relationship, and they have to work with this person. And so then they're worried like, oh, well, I'm just going to avoid the conflict of dealing with the coworker who's hugging me, and I don't want them to dislike me and cause tension in the workplace that I would then have to deal with if I set up a boundary. Right. Okay. It's interesting because I'm thinking about how this would apply to um, financial situations. And the way you're Mm -hmm. describing it is very interesting because I think a lot of people, this is the way we deal with conflict when we're sitting at the dinner table with a group of people and it's time to split the bill. And what Mm -hmm. happens? You know, some people who cannot even afford it don't want that conflict at all. And they grab the bill and they say, I'm going to pay for it, even Mm -hmm. though they know They not only cannot afford it, 
but they shouldn't be paying for everyone. There's no reason for them mm-hmm. to pay for everyone. And I think to me, that's an example of how this can cross over into our financial situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was at a birthday dinner party a few weeks ago, and there was a person there who early on in the dinner said to the person whose birthday it was, is it okay? I just want to let you know that I'm not going to be drinking because A, I'm not drinking and also I'm trying to save money. So when it comes time to split the bill, can I just want you to know that I'm not going to pay for alcohol because alcohol is usually the most expensive yeah, thing right, when exactly. you go out to dinner. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's not fair that those things happen, especially if people who feel like I have this financial boundary or I don't have the financial resources to right. be able to pay for something like this. Like someone who goes out to dinner with a group of people and it's like, oh, I'm going to have a small salad and everyone else has, you know, three courses and a glass of wine. And then they feel uncomfortable like, oh, I was trying to save money, but now we're splitting the bill and I have to pay three times what my salad was worth. Right. Right. Well, good for that person for standing up for themselves. Yeah, props to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to <laughs> instill that in myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm wondering if, if you notice, are there common characteristics in your clients or have they assumed common characteristics when they start to overcome their trauma? Or is there a sort of a, a common triggering event that people start to overcome their trauma? Like, how do I or they recognize that they're starting to get better? Is yeah. Is that what you're asking? Um, yeah, I mean, people might say sometimes they're not even aware of it. Sometimes I'm the one who notices it first because mm-hmm. most people don't recognize when they're starting to feel better. We're programmed so much to focus on the negative that we notice when we start to feel bad, but we usually don't notice so much when we start to feel better, unless it's really significant. But for a lot of people, they may so say something like, oh, I noticed that I feel more comfortable in a certain kind of environment, or I noticed that I am sleeping better. Or because we may have talked about one of their addictions or habits, they may say, oh, I noticed that I'm not really doing that thing anymore, or I'm not doing it as much. They may say, I noticed that I'm only on Facebook two hours a day instead of 10 hours a day or something like that. (laughs) Or they might just feel better in their body. A lot of times trauma can, I mean, that's one of the biggest things about trauma is that it usually manifests in the body, even if the traumatic experience was not physical because of the way that our nervous system reacts to trauma and stress that it gets stuck in the body and held in the body. So people may notice you know, oh, that pain that I had that never went away is finally gone. Or I notice that my posture is better or I notice that I'm breathing better. Or maybe I'm not having those migraines anymore like I used to have, you know, so it could be a variety of things. Yeah, that's kind of what I was looking for. And I'm not I'm not terribly surprised that you said a, a common response is an improvement in, in physical health, I guess, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we do a lot of us, a lot of us do sort of, especially if we're holding on to something, and we're not comfortable enough sharing it with somebody. That often manifests itself in some sort of stress or tension, headache, and especially, and we can relate to this lack of sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's something else that it's more of a cultural thing that people from different cultures will report a physical or somatic experience before they will report a emotional or psychological experience. They'll report a pain or a stiffness or something not working with their body before they will report something emotional or psychological. And it's usually it's based on either the culture of their family or the culture of their heritage because of just the way that they talk about themselves. So, you know, some people are just don't focus so much on the mind or feelings or psychology. They focus more on, well, how are you feeling in your body? Or, you know, instead of saying I'm depressed, they would say, you know, I'm sleeping all the time. Or instead of saying I'm nervous or I have a lot of anxiety, they would say, oh, I'm having digestion problems or I have a constant stomach ache or I have chronic migraines and the doctors can't tell me what's going on. Well, yeah, because there's still a lot of social um, stigma to, I don't know how to say it without saying it, saying offensive, but there's still a lot of social stigma to to mental health, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And again, it depends on the culture. Like, it's unfortunate that most of the people who seek out particularly psychotherapy are white, middle, and upper class people for a variety of reasons. You know, some because those it's predominantly those people from that culture who talk about their feelings and about psychology. 
in a way that is socially acceptable and also because they have the financial resources. Whereas other cultures, they're like, oh, well, we don't talk about those things with people outside of the family. You know, so if you're going to seek out that help, it means there must be something really wrong with you or they're crazy. I mean, I've had a couple people come in and in the first session, they're like, the thing that is the scariest of them is that I'm going to tell them they're crazy. And I say, <laughs> and my response to that is, well, I don't think that you're crazy. You're just having a normal human experience. And there's really no such thing as crazy. So <laughs> well, I feel like we could talk about this for a long time because yeah. I don't know a lot <laughs> about this topic <laughs> right. and it fascinates me and, and you do. So I'm curious, where can our listeners who maybe want to work with you, how can they connect with you? Yeah. So for people who are in California or in the San Francisco Bay Area, they can find my website, which is holistictherapysf.com. And for coaching outside of California and worldwide, they can go to queerhealingjourneys.com. And also on queerhealingjourneys.com, there's a free guide people can download that's called Needs, Boundaries, and Self-Care for Queer Folks. And it's a free guide to help them work through some of the things that we talked about today. Oh, that's awesome. awesome. Well, we'll link to all that in our, in our show notes. And... You also have a podcast, so let's mention the podcast again. Yeah, I also have a podcast, a weekly podcast called The Queer Spirit, and you can find it anywhere you find your podcast. And it's conversations with artists, healers, and activists who support the LGBTQ communities to thrive. Awesome. I love that. And can, do you mind sharing with our listeners, because I know we talked about it on your show, do you mind sharing with our listeners why you focus on uh, those demographics within the community? I would say the main reason I focus on those demographics is because those are the kinds of conversations that are interesting to me and the ways that I have experienced the most help personally and also with my clients. I like to share some of that wisdom and knowledge with other people who may not know about it or have access to that information. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nick. We appreciate your time. And I think we're going to have to have you back because I really enjoyed this conversation and I clearly have a lot more to learn. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, w I would love to delve a little bit deeper into the money aspect of some of the traumatic experiences and how people can identify and heal from those too. Yeah. So look out for part two coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole, you know, we could talk about just the trauma of related to money specifically in general. So yep. yeah. thank See you for can. having me on the show. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, for sharing your amazing insights. This was a fun and informative conversation, and we appreciate it. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Queer Money. To help us help more queer people, please like, comment, and share Queer Money on your favorite podcast platform. Then join us next week, yes, New Year's Eve, for our last episode of 2019. You won't want to miss this. To learn more about how our sponsor, Capital One, is reimagining their local spaces and experiences to have banking better fit your life, visit www.capitalone.com and follow them on social at Capital One Cafe. If you or someone you know is in or near Denver on Thursday, June 13th, go to queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour to reserve a spot to win amazing swag, including our very popular fried sunglasses, free coffee, and of course, an hour of Queer Money Bingo hosted by yours truly. That's queermoneypodcast.com forward slash tour.